Watch this immediately. Watch this immediately. Oh my god, what is happening? Welcome back. Happy to see you. You're listening once again to Watch This Immediately, the podcast where we watch the movie so you don't need to read the book. Myself, I'm one of your co-hosts, but what about the guy on the other side of the table? What's his name? Manir here. That's right. That's his name. And here we are tonight. That's right. Here we are tonight to talk about (laughs) the epic sci-fi movie Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. From 1982, directed by Nicholas Meyer and starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Ricardo Montalban, and introducing Kirstie Alley. And just as a side note for myself, with music by James Horner. Who's James Horner? James Horner is a guy who makes music for movies. <laughs> he, okay. He has a very, um, he's, he's done a lot of movies that... Um, you would recognize, but he tends to cannibalize his own scores quite a bit. And once you learn to recognize a certain horn kind of motif that he likes to use, you will hear it in every single one of his things. Um, Hmm. And I don't know how to describe it exactly. It's this big French horn and trombone thing that he likes to do. I'll play it. I'll play something for you um, after we're done here. But once you hear that, anytime you hear that, something from the 80s or 70s that James Horner did, you hear that kind of riff that he does. And you're mm. like, oh, okay, this is the... Because he wrote, like, maybe seven scores and then cannibalized them 50 times. Is that like, uh, what's-his-face? Uh, the guy who did all the Spaghetti Western? Ennio Morricone? Yeah, same yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he never was afraid to reuse anything. Mm-hmm. That is correct. That is correct. So this is a movie from 1982, uh, which was possibly the greatest summer ever for, or the greatest year ever for science fiction movies in America. Um, Because we had, even though it was an Australian film, we had Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, E.T., The Thing, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Blade Runner. And I feel like there's another one I'm missing. Those all came out in the space of like three weeks. Three weeks? Oh, did I mention the thing? Uh, yeah, I think you did. Okay. So mm. those, and I'm, I'm pretty sure another one came out in like the space of six weeks or three weeks. Wow. So 1982 was a good year and a good summer in particular for sci-fi. Yeah. So you could have walked into a theater and potentially seen all five of the movies that I just mentioned. In the summer of 1982. Holy smokes. So, pretty good year to be a nerd. Mm. And this movie was the only one of the early Star Trek movies, so like the six that feature the original cast. This is the only one that is direct reference to the series. It was an episode called Space Seed. I don't think you have to know much about Space Seed to appreciate the movie. I've never seen it. So I've, I've never seen the episode. And this was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. Um, so you can pick up pretty much everything you know need to know, I think, from the movie. Um, but I did give you a primer just in case, since okay. I, I know a lot of Star Trek. And yeah. I, I don't think Star Trek is a huge part of your no, not pop till, cultural education. Not next generation. Yeah. So yeah, I, I watched I watched that... For a couple of years. I mean, I haven't seen all of the 
next generation by any means, but I did I did see a lot more of it than anything else. Yeah, you well, you got here at the right time to do that because mm-hmm. next generation started in '89, I think. Yep, that's I would watch it as a as a kid. It was just on. Actually, it might start in '88 or '87. I don't know for sure, but late '80s, definitely mm-hmm. late '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so this was the second outing for. The original cast in the movie theater. Uh, the first movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture, came out in 1979, and it did fairly well. However, it had a very long gestation period. It originally started out as with the intention of making it a TV movie, and then um, with the success of Star Wars, they were like, well, no, we're going to make... Uh, Originally, they thought a, a series, and then when Star Wars hit, they were like, no, we're going to make a movie out of it. Mm-hmm. And so this long gestational period resulted in a whole lot of money being spent that all ended up falling under the banner of Star Trek The Motion Picture. So it ended up being this really expensive endeavor, and mm-hmm. the creator of the series, Gene Roddenberry, wasn't good at reining in costs. And so as the movie progressed, it got more and more expensive, and he ended up being cut out of Star Trek II entirely. This mm-hmm. movie was was undertaken by the Paramount Television Division. And it is a master class in cutting costs. (laughs) And you you can see it on the screen because it it does look very low budget. uh, And it was very low budget. But they did a great job of bringing in a very cheap movie, making it look good enough to be a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And they, they made a crap ton of money on it. Yeah, I was wondering about the special effects because uh, it's like, man, I feel like things were a little better in the '80s. The special effects were not amazing, but you have to consider all of the best special effects people were working on Star Wars. Um, Wait, when did Tron come out? Tron came out in 1982, I think. Actually, mm. so Tron was another big sci-fi movie this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tron was fantastic. Go back and watch it again. I mean, it's it's been... You watched it at my place yeah. before we went to see Tron Legacy. Yeah. Go back and look at it again. And, okay. t- and tell me if it's that much better than Star Trek II. All right, all right. I think you might be surprised. Um, <laughs> because you have to remember, the best people were working on Star Wars at this time. Because hmm. uh, Industrial Light and Magic was founded... Um, specifically for Star Wars. And Star Wars was their bread and butter for this entire time. While this was in production, Return of the Jedi was in production. So all the best people at ILM are working on Return of the Jedi. And I think ILM did do the effects for this, but hmm. you're not getting you're not getting the full attention of ILM at this no, time no, because they're working on Return of the Jedi. No way. And uh, also a side note, the Genesis sizzle reel that we see if i remember correctly is the first um thing put on film by pixar really if i remember correctly yes wow so that's Pixar's that old i didn't know that yeah hmm. so yes the special effects are not as amazing as they could be but they were pretty good for 1982 outer space special effects took a quantum leap forward with star wars yeah and then you know, they pretty much were happy with what they have on the Empire Strikes Back. Um, and they they took another huge step forward in Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And after that, there was really no looking back. So this one was kind of in the in-between period where things could still look a little bit shit. 
Um, and they sort of do because there are several points in the um, space sequences where you can see through the starships and you can see yeah. the star fields through the ships. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that was something that had to be done at that time. You just could not escape it. And Star Wars moved faster than this movie does. That's one of the things that I like about Star Trek too, is the ships seem huge mm-hmm. and they move extremely slowly because those big ass ships would mm-hmm. if they were engaged in combat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like a submarine battle. Yeah, and it, exactly. As a result, yeah, you do have the ability to notice, Oh God, this doesn't hold up to scrutiny if I take too long to look at it. Um, but I think for the most part it gets over. Yeah, it, it does. It does a decent job. I mean, I didn't feel like it was comically terrible, those special effects, but you know, I've I've become I've become very uh, spoiled living in current times. Yeah. It, we have to remember the only thing that ages worse than comedy is special effects. Yeah. So, even if we look back at Star Wars, I and mean, that was something that I was amazed at uh when uh, when Rachel and I went to see Star Wars in Los Angeles a few months ago, mm-hmm. um, was we we saw a complete non special edition version of it, and it it looks rough. It looks really rough mm. um, because that's that's just the way of things. Yeah. So you do have to. I mean, if you can give comedies of the past a little bit of grace for being always racist and sexist. <laughs> you can give special effects movies of the past a little bit of grace for not being, you know, aces with their matting. Correct. Correct. But I've gone on and on and on. What are your impressions of this now that you've seen it? Because I had seen it many times. I was a nerd as a mm-hmm. kid, and so I saw all of the first four Star Trek movies over and over and over. We, like, taped them off a of TV, and I watched them many mm-hmm. times. We had uh, a few episodes of the series on tape, not the one that references um, this movie, but probably about 20 different episodes total that I had watched over and over. Hmm. So I was a big fan of Star Trek. And so Star Trek and Star Wars and James Bond were like the triumvirate for me as a kid. Uh, I was a very old child. (laughs) I was into these old person things like Star Wars and Star Trek and James Bond. But um, what did you think? Is this because this is something you had, had you seen any of the old Star Trek movies? No, no, I've I've not seen uh, I've not seen any of the, any of the ones with the original cast. I've seen the new one um, that came out, well, quote unquote new, in like two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, no, I I had not seen the movies of the old ones. Okay, no, but I I liked it overall. Um, yeah, I mean the whole. I remember you saying that this was kind of like Moby Dick. Yes. Yeah, man. If Moby Dick is like. Con, then I'm kind of glad I watched this movie and not read that stupid book. Do not read Moby Dick. I cannot stress this highly enough. If you're listening to this and you've never read Moby Dick, don't. Mm-hmm. Do not read that book. It is a bad book. And you can spend two hours of your life watching Star Trek II. You will get the exact same themes. You will get Ricardo Montalban chewing scenery with such gusto. Yeah. I was going to say chef's kiss <laughs> all the way through Ricardo Montalban having the time of his life working on this movie. And I love any movie where somebody is either dialing in a performance from another dimension or they are obviously having a great time doing it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, usually 
<laughs> like Nicolas Cage, I saw Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage earlier this week. That is one of those movies. That's one of those. That's one of the few that is at that nexus point where he's obviously having a great time and he's bringing it in from the next dimension. This one is just having a great time. But I love those performances. Mm. You can tell Ricardo Montalban showed up every day. I was like, can you believe I get paid for this shit? Mm. And it's such a good time because he's he's over the top. Oh, so over the top. In all the perfect ways. Because if you are going to go, if you're going to put someone up against William Shatner, mm. it has to be a grade A scenery chewer. Correct. And Ricardo nails it. Now, so, so okay. Ricardo Montalban, like his whole, his character mm-hmm. was allegedly put into cryogenesis in 1996. That was a wild year. You remember that. <laughs> so, okay. I was just going into my sophomore year of college. Exactly. Um, so here's the, here's the thing that I always have kind of found comical about 80s to early 90s movies. That are like science fiction. They always, for some reason or another, thought that we would have flying cars and spaceships by Y2K. It's always, yeah, it's always 15 years in the future. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is because it seems far enough in the future that you don't know what will happen, but near enough that you that it still seems attainable to you. Yeah. Um, and I think whether there's any research that backs this up, I think there's a certain Goldilocks zone where that seems where that kind of draws you in a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of like Harley Davidson. The Marlboro man was, I've never seen that. Yo, that thing was set in like 1995, I think. Really? And it was made in 91. I'm like, we're we're not going to have this level of technology in four years. (laughs) Yeah. So it's got, we got to have a little bit of distance, but yeah, 1996, give us a nice 15 years to get into what are called the eugenics wars in Star Trek, <laughs> genetically engineered supermen who take over the world. Okay. So I, I had a few notes here. We start off with uh, Christy Alley playing Savick. Yes. Why is she called Mr.? I think that's just a military thing. Okay. I believe in the, the concept of the director mm. um, was to... Make it. He he envisioned it as Horatio Hornblower in space, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The Star Trek movies had also, or the Star Trek TV show and the first movie had kind of avoided a specific military theme. I mean, there were definitely military influences, mm-hmm. but they had consciously avoided that because Gene Roddenberry didn't want it to be a military organization. Uh, Roddenberry was shut out in this movie, and the director, Nicholas Meyer, was like, no, I want to draw the military parallels. I want to draw the naval parallels to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those was um, just to make everything kind of gender neutral. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, not gender neutral exactly, but um, gender nonspecific yeah. and just have Mr. for everybody. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I... I just was like wondering about that if that was a Star Trek thing or not. It doesn't pop up in any of the other uh, any of the other movies that I recall. Okay. Well, you it know, was, this is something specific to this movie, if I remember right. So the other thing, so I guess the next thing I had a I had a comment about was, you know, so so is it is it Jim McCoy who gives? Uh, Kirk the sunglasses and the Romulan ale. 
Uh, that would be uh, Leonard McCoy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim is Kirk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing that uh, another thing that like kind of always seems to happen in these movies is like they'll get something from our time and just be totally baffled by it. That was a little weird, yeah. but the idea was that he. Um, he had I he 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 was short sighted. Yeah, for sure. Um, but but I'm like, come on, bro. If if I get if I get like a, a pot from ancient Egypt or whatever, I'm gonna put some things in it and carry it around. Yeah, but some you're probably also going to ask questions about it. Yeah, yeah. and the first question you might ask might be. What is it? Because it's a pot, but do you know the context of the pot? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he might know that they're glasses because he's not an idiot. I mean, it's 200 years in the future, but he might still know what glasses are, but he might want to know what the significance of it is. Mm-hmm. And so what you might ask in that situation is, well, what is it? Right. Right. And so, so I see your point, but I, I think it makes sense okay. to ask. So, you know, as we're going on, um, they, they have what... Uh, Wait, do we want to go through the plot, or do we just want to ask our questions? It's up to you. Okay. I didn't take a whole lot of notes. I just kind of enjoyed watching the movie, because I haven't seen it in a while. Well, so, you know, we we get to a point where, like, Savick is a trainee captain, it looks like, and Mm -hmm. um, they end up going to the Enterprise, because, you know, Kirk is now an admiral, and he's all... He's all amped about getting back to his old ship. He's doing an inspection Mm -hmm. before a training mission, yep. Yeah. And, you know, of course... The whole crew's back together, and so and so they end up uh, going to uh, what do you call it? SETI Alpha Six. Um, technically, SETI Alpha Five. Right, they're they supposed f- to go to. Five. The Reliant thinks they're going to SETI Alpha Six. So my other question was: in this era of of extremely advanced technology, how do you get the planets wrong? Uh, they explain that in the movie. I forgot. I, I, I guess I didn't catch that. They think they're going to SETI Alpha 5. Khan mm-hmm. says SETI Alpha 6 exploded, and the explosion shifted the orbits. Oh. So it would have shifted the orbit close enough to SETI Alpha 6 if they mistook it for SETI Alpha 6. Oh, got it. Okay. okay. Yeah, maybe I was just... God, my kitten was running around this <laughs> the, the Sammy was tearing it up. Yeah, she was going after it. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> this kitten is adorable and has a lot of energy. Oh, yeah. she's she, That is one thing she'll never fall short of. Although, unlike Monkey, uh, she is currently napping as we're talking. Oh, no. That's just, that's just a, a quick, like, 20-minute nap. She'll, she'll be back and running around in no time. God, I need to steal her energy. I know, right? <laughs> I'm so tired all the time. <laughs> now... There, there are some phrases here, which I also don't understand. It's like, so you know, when we first see um, the two doctors, you know, one of them is Carol Marcus, and then there's David Marcus, and mm-hmm. turns out uh, Carol and Kirk, uh, you know, had had a thing going back in the day. They banged it up. Yeah. So he says something like, "Don't have kittens." When when they're going, like when they're in their ship, what does that mean? Um, it's just it's not something that I've heard extensively used, but I've have heard it used before. It's just meaning that you're freaking out. 
Oh. Like, oh, he'll have kittens. And it, I, yeah, I only ever heard it used in movies and TV shows, yeah, but I have heard phrase. it used. It's a weird phrase. So it must have been something that's around that was around old people in mm-hmm. the 80s. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. It's it's probably kind of like how how Saved by the Bell was written by, you know, 50 and 60-year-old men. Yeah. So this had to have been something like that. Exactly. <laughs> Somebody under the age of 25 in 1982 did not write that. Yeah. yeah. That line was in there from an old pro. <laughs> like, I'm just going to put this line in there. I put it in every one of my pictures. So he tasks me as another line. I, I've never heard that, like, outside of this context. Now, I will say... That there were a lot of uh, a lot of things from this movie that I'd heard in like Big Bang Theory. Hmm. That would make sense because I'm sure. Yeah, man. Star Trek would be referenced a lot, and particularly Star Trek Two, probably. Oh yeah, Big, like the whole like the con thing that was something they did uh, in Big Bang Theory. Well, that's across. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the few things in this movie that reaches out across the pop cultural mm-hmm. landscape. But then there's also like the he tasks me thing mm-hmm. is is also in a specific episode of Big Bang Theory. I could see that too. And so I take it to mean like he's my nemesis and I need to destroy him. Is that That's kind, kind of, of I mean it's the the meaning of it is he requires it of me. Mm. Like he demands it of me. Uh. So it's just like, you know, you would task somebody to do a Uh, job for you. Gotcha. gotcha. So it's just, you know, to him, it's an elementary equation. It's just like, I need to do this. He wants me to do this. He needs me to do this. Yeah. So my thinking is that that blonde haired dude. So, you know, we we have Ricardo Montalban and his crew taking over the USS Reliant. And and then they trick the Enterprise. Um, once uh, once they've taken it over, mm-hmm. now the 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 kid who at every turn is telling Khan like, "Hey man, we shouldn't be doing this." I'm assuming is his son. Probably, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, why would he avenge like just a rando? Because yeah, he does. We have say, no idea. These people have been together for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Fair. fair. So we have no idea what the history was, but it, you're probably right. It probably is intended to be a son. Yeah, and that was the thing about it too. I'm like, at every turn, Khan is like, you know, hey, we need to go destroy the Enterprise and kill Kirk. And the son's like, hey, listen, you've got the shit. Like, we're off the planet. Yeah. And Khan's like, that's not enough. At least four times in this yeah. movie, Khan could walk away. Oh yeah. And be fine. And then, and then they're like, "You've already got the Genesis device. Let's just go." And Khan's like, "No." And you know what? You have to spend five hundred pages doing Ugh. in Moby Dick, learning the same goddamn lesson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Walk away. If if this is something that happened in Moby Dick, I would I would stop reading it. I think. After yes, the it's first infuriating. The book is so damn long, and it's so much stuff about Whaling and God, I hate it. Yo, so there is a whole thing in, in this in this movie where the Reliant and the Enterprise at several points in the movie are like essentially incapacitated. Mm -hmm. So in Moby Dick, is there periods of time when the whale's like destroying the ship? It's honestly been so long because I think it was about 10, maybe 12 years ago Mm. when I read it. And I, I blasted through it in like 
a couple of weeks, I think, because I read most of it um, when a, a mutual friend and I were proctoring an exam. Uh, I can't remember if we were doing like the LSAT or um, mm-hmm. we were doing some sort of exam proctoring thing. And so we were just sitting in a classroom for five hours. And so I'm just sitting there reading my book and she's reading her book and I've read most of Moby Dick in that time. Okay. Um, so I blasted through it after that within a couple of weeks. And so I have not thought much about it since because it just, I got really sick of it. Mm. Um, the whale ultimately does make a complete hash of the boat, as I recall. Interesting. The Pequod. Ah. So, you know, back in the day, man, when I was, uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was really kind of bored with classes and stuff. We all were. So, you know, uh, I undertook my very distasteful campaign to uh, popularity. <laughs> and one of the planks in this platform uh, was getting in-school suspensions. <laughs> I have a question. Go. What was the rationale behind this? In-school suspensions? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, whenever I'd get caught doing all sorts of terrible things to my enemies, they would uh, the remain in school suspension. But that was part of your... I mean, it was a happy. Was a it was a happy byproduct. Okay, so this wasn't a. This was not a plank of your platform. This well, wasn't no. popular people or an ISS. No, 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 no. Okay, no, no. We were all nerds and weirdos and okay. burnouts. That makes a little more sense. But the thing I found out after I had my first one um, was that hey man, I can get all my I can get all my work done in like by second hour. That was a benefit of ISS. I was only in there a couple of times, but yeah. Oh, dude. So, so I figured out, I was like, yo, I mean, I feel like I'm going to be in here a lot. <laughs> and so I got to figure out like a plan because unfortunately the first time I went, I, I had only brought Nintendo Power magazines with me <laughs> and that was not something that they were willing to let me read in high school. Go figure. <laughs> Go figure. They're not going to let you read up on Castlevania 2 or exactly. track and field. Exactly. <laughs> So what I figured out was, hey, man, I could bring books in, into ISS, and they're, like, fine with that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it was actually quite pleasant for me. I would finish my work, and then I would just read for the rest of the day and just mm-hmm. chill out. So you're just reading The Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. Just kicking back. Just chilling out, man. War and peace. Exactly. <laughs> Needful things if you're feeling saucy. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was, uh, I think it had the opposite effect of, on me. Because I was like, wow, this is great. Like, I don't have to put up with a bunch of nonsense, and I don't have to deal with people all day. This is fantastic. I need to get in here more. Yeah, I kind of liked it the mm-hmm. couple of times that I had to do it. And I was like, I can just finish up my homework really quick and yeah. start reading. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah, the, and the teachers were just like, and I, I don't know, maybe they, they were like vying for that duty. Because, yeah, the guy who was in there with me, he was just kind of chilling out. I think he went for a smoke break a few times. Nice. Yeah, it was pretty good. Everyone's having fun. ISS. But, uh, yeah, you know, that that story of you uh, reading Bobby Dick during the exam proctoring reminded me of that. Yeah. For me, it was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And all I got for it was 300 bucks. I mean, I actually ended up reading most of this book about, uh, it was like a retelling of the Stanley and Livingston story. Okay. But also um, involving a murderous Sudanese warlord. <laughs> all right. Yeah. It was all right. It was a book I got uh, 
from a salesman when he came to do a national, or, or sorry, an Encyclopedia Britannica demonstration. <laughs> and and he gave us the opportunity, he gave us, uh, you know, he's like, I'll give you one of these books, like, no matter what, you get to keep the book. As long as you let me give this presentation, we're like, that's fine. All right. Well, so I, I picked out the book and I was like, all right. Good. So this wasn't part of the quick reference set? No, no, no. Damn. No, it was, it was The Last Hero by Peter Forbeth, in case you're interested. I was not, but whoever's listening might be. Yeah. Yeah, check it out. It's not a bad book. I probably won't. <laughs> just, I've got a lot of reading to do. Oh, I, I just won't be reading that me one. Me too. But, uh, yeah, no, so back to the movie. Um, Moby Dick sucks. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it did get a little tiresome at the end, where I'm like, God, these ships are incapacitated. Like, how much more can... How much more can happen? I enjoy that because we understand narrative enough to this point where mm. at our age and at our point in our pop cultural existence, mm. we know what's going to happen. Yeah, fair. I mean, almost any time you go to a, a movie or you read a book now, you know enough about the flow of narrative that the conventions of the time dictate certain things are going to happen at certain points. And I love movies that disrupt that flow. And one of the things that I like about this is that, yeah, they are both, you know, disabled for most of the movie. Um, The whole end battle takes place in a nebula where they can't really see each other or do much of anything. Um, And, after the main like visual climax of the movie, it continues for 15 minutes. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love that. I find that fascinating mm-hmm. because it keeps me on my toes. And it's not, it's not really like much of anything at the time, but it's also not like much of anything post, say, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because mm. uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is kind of viewed as the demarcation point of um, – current filmmaking like where that began um like blockbuster filmmaking and it's you know the the starting point of where we reach where we are with like the marvel movies now mm-hmm. where you the characters are different but you know exactly what's going to happen you know what oh, beats are going to get hit sure. in every movie um and it's not necessarily bad or good it's just um it's just kind of the same yeah um and that's one of the things I love about this is it is more slowly paced and deliberate and you don't normally get that kind of difference in a blockbuster movie. Hmm. And so I, I enjoy the fact that everything is a much more grandiose pace in this movie. So in that Mutara Nebula where they have the fight, mm-hmm. you know, the whole background is, is that soft kind of blue and pink. Yeah. Was that a motif that was in a lot of Star Wars science fiction movies? I mean, not that I recall. No, um, I'm guessing those were probably just the colors that showed up best. <laughs> yeah, because that exact color palette is used a lot in like these, you know, retro quote unquote fonts and things like that. So, yeah, it might have just been the best things. You know, the best. Um, that might have been popular and I just didn't realize it, or those might have just been the best colors that they could um, get to pop on screen at the time. No, I could, I can see that. I mean, it, it, it is visually like very, very interesting and nice to watch, but mm-hmm. yeah, I was just wondering if that was the thing. Cause yeah, I mean like I've like, there's a, um, there are a couple of those like retro theme packs I got for my phone mm-hmm. where, you know, it had like different backgrounds and stuff. And a lot of them had that blue and pink, 
hmm. kind of motif in the, in the. Yeah, I don't remember. Hmm. Um, that's. I'm sure if we got enough material from back in the days, we would probably start to see a pattern emerge. Yeah. Uh, but I just don't remember. That's okay. But you know, I was just saying. That's uh, that's something I've noticed, and I like I like that color combination. It's very pleasing to the eye. Yeah, man. So yeah, then I would say overall, like you know, if we're gonna start to wrap it up, um, yeah, I, I think as as far as a movie, it, I think it was very successful, and to your point, being unconventional but still enjoyable. I think it holds up really well, and I I enjoy. It's probably the best performance you're going to get out of William Shatner. Mm-hmm. Um, I there are a lot of little exchanges in this movie that I really enjoy. Um, one of my favorite things that I love to use in daily life is the line, you need to learn why things work. And the, the line that they use specifically is like, you need to learn why things work on a starship. But mm-hmm. um, I love that mm-hmm. uh, that specific delineation of you don't just need to know how things work correct because we are so focused on how we often ignore the the why of it Mm -hmm. and i i love the fact that they focus on that and it's like okay well you know the reason that we need to do this is because there is a prefix code that prevents us from controlling the other ship yeah and if this other person doesn't know about it then we can exploit that and it for somebody so many people are hungry for knowledge that they don't really worry about the practical applications of those knowledge Correct. of that knowledge and i i love very much that line yeah. that you need to learn why things work cuz you know and he says like the only thing that was help that helped him win like battle number 1 was he knew more about the ship or he knew things about the ship most people don't yeah yeah and so especially as i get older i i appreciate you know, I have no idea. Shatner was probably about my age when he made this movie, yeah. and so I, I appreciate that the the aspect of the story of the fact that he's getting older and he's starting to feel his age, and that's of course something I didn't appreciate as a kid, but it resonates more with me now. Um, and him looking yeah, at the lives that he could have led versus the life that he is actually living. Was the original series in the six, late sixties or early seventies? Late sixties, sixty-seven through sixty-nine. Damn. And they so this this development cycle was from sixty nine to seventy nine for uh, until the first movie. Um, the actual development, I think, probably took place from maybe seventy six to seventy nine. Oh, interesting. So yeah, for seven years it was essentially a dormant uh, franchise. Not entirely. There was an animated series at oh. some point in the very early seventies that uh, several of the cast members voiced, okay. um, but it was not something that was active. It was something that was kept alive by uh, syndication showings for the most part. Makes sense. Okay, fair. So yeah, I think uh, let's uh, let's talk uh, let's talk what we think here, man. I think that this is an excellent movie. It does show its age, but it is a sci-fi movie from 1982. Mm -hmm. Uh, 40-year-old sci-fi, like I said, it doesn't wear its years well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think even though the pacing would definitely be faster if the movie were made today, I think the fact that you have a 1982 movie on the big screen with these two gigantic warships 
really benefits from a more gradual pace. I love the fact that the movie is more about relationships and more mm. about um, little observations in character that we don't get from movies nowadays. Mm-hmm. They're not, not big budget sci-fi movies. Right. Um, and love the music, love the performances. For me, this is a great movie and I don't think it will be a shocker to you that I would call this a cultural touchstone. This is a movie that really gave birth to the franchise. Um, if not for Star Trek two, you would not have, of course, the following mm-hmm. eight movies or whatever. Um, or I guess the following 11 movies. And Damn, that many. I didn't know that. Well, you've got the... Right, you've... I think the originals go up to, what, six or seven? The originals go up to six. The Next Generation ones go up to ten. And then we've got the three Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto movies. Three? Interesting. I didn't know there were three. Okay. Yeah. The second one's terrible, but the third one's actually really good. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, uh... So the reason that Star Trek is still a viable product in this day and age. The reason that we still start talk of star Trek as a thing that is rather than a thing that was, is this movie Hmm. because this was not intended to be a continuation. This was intended to be the send off for the crew. They're like, Hmm. okay, we're going to do one more movie with these people. Let's make it good. Wait. So, because, okay. The thing that really, confused me hmm. and and to get back to this real quick is uh spock dies at the end of two correct and then i saw the star trek three is called the search for spock it is and so yeah i'm like that would be a weird send-off if it was not intended to be th- this was intended to be the end there was not intended to be a sequel after this but i mean they show the spock coffin in the genesis planet true and so was that added later when they thought that there would be a third movie? I think that was added later. I don't think it was added by the director. Mm. I I think the director did not get final cut on this, and the uh, the memory transplant scene towards the end, and the torpedo tube soft landing on the Genesis planet. I think those were added without his approval. Hmm. Okay. And so, so at least they were aware. That, hey, let's put in something in case we can get another movie out of this. I think they recognized they had a good product and they wanted to give themselves an out if they wanted to make more. Right. Okay, fair. But the movie was not conceived as a springboard Mm. for further movies. It ended up being that because the next two movies directly follow this. Yeah, I would imagine that, you know, once this one did well, that they were like... Let's just make as many of these as we can. Well, yeah, you got to. Mm-hmm. And then I, I enjoy the next two movies quite a bit, frankly. But so I know that um, the, so so the original crew they were making these movies into the mid to late nineties, right? Uh, until I believe ninety one or ninety. Okay. Because they, um, it came out. The Star Trek VI was the last one. It came out during the holiday season. It was the same year that The Addams Family came out. Mm. So 91. Okay, that, okay, 91. Yeah, that's 91. So, yeah, that was the last one for the original crew. Okay. So they, they continued doing it for a while. 
But they were all low-budget affairs. I believe they were all handled by Paramount Television because they were not spending a huge amount of money um, after the relative debacle of the original Star Trek movie. Yeah. So it's it's kind of funny. It For a decent moneymaker for the Paramount production house, it was always kind of treated like a stepchild. Hmm. Well, I mean, I figure... If all the execs were unhappy about how much it, how much it cost to get off the ground, they were they were probably they probably still were like, okay, we we got to keep on making the money back on this thing. Yeah, it's understandable, but yeah. at the same time, you you would think with the stature that Star Trek has attained over the decades, you would think it would have gotten a little more respect, but it was not kind of viewed as, as a respectable thing right. back in the eighties. Oh yeah, yeah, like the you know, in Big Bang Theory, for example. It's seen as like very nerdy and almost seedy by the quote unquote normal people in the show, and it still probably is to a certain extent. But mm-hmm. the the sexy J.J. Uh, Abrams movies probably helped uh, quite a bit, uh, and the uh, they, they've got a couple of different shows going on right now, like the Picard and mm-hmm. Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Strange New Worlds or something. They've, they've got yeah. several things going on right now that I frankly just haven't had the time to watch. Well, and I think I, I know that one of those Star Trek series is an exclusive on Paramount Plus. So mm-hmm. that's probably why you haven't seen that one. I just don't have the time. Yeah. There's too much Star Trek content. I never would have imagined that I would be living in a world as a, a you know 12 year old kid who was in love with Star Trek. I never dreamed that I would live in a world where there was too much Star Trek content for mm. me to watch. But. We're there, and I'll never have the time to watch it. I don't even have the time to get to Deep Space Nine. Ugh. So, I would so say for me, cultural touchstone. After you have explained this to me, I agree. I could see this being a cultural touchstone as well. So, this is uh, yet another cultural touchstone. Magnificent. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Victory is mine. <laughs> Cultural touchstone. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, directed by Nicholas Meyer. So this is a huge deal for Nicholas Meyer. Hmm. Yes. Because when we give the Cultural Touchstone Award, um, we will, of course, have the Lucite diamond printed up for him. Yes. And it will be on its way to you, Mr. Meyer. Right. Um, he He's done some other things, I'm sure. Um I mean, he's probably done at least, I don't know, maybe like St. Elsewhere or something like that. I'm not if he was, sure. well, if he, he, was a he directed guy. Star Trek VI, I know that. Oh, okay. but, well, uh, you know, got to go back to the well. He's he's kind of the Star Trek whisperer, but um, yeah, he's, he's done other things, I'm sure. Okay. But yeah, so I would say... Um, yeah, I would, I would say it's a solid, solid pick by you. Excellent. Well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Now, what are your marching orders? Man, for the most part, uh, I'm on a losing streak here because I've put all eyes on me out out there. I've put the 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 rap battle, which was maybe a little sentimental for me. However, I, I think I'm gonna, I'm going to go back to the rap well one more time. Okay. Now, do you want? A group or a single person? Hmm. I think I know what the group one's going to be. But then I think I know what the single one's going to be, too. Okay. What do you think? So I'm going to say the group 
and I'm going to find out if it's what I think it's going to be. What do you think? I think it's going to be Enter the Wu-Tang. Yeah, buddy. Okay. Yeah, buddy. This is something I know nothing about. Okay. Yeah. I've been telling people to protect their neck for years. And now you... But it means nothing to me. Now you will know exactly what it means. You will also know what, uh, what, what, uh, not cold world, um, cash rules everything around me. I feel like that one's self-explanatory. I mean, yeah, but, but it's like you hear that chorus everywhere and now you'll get to hear the actual bars. Okay. Mm hmm. Now I do have to ask, how many hours is this going to be? Oh, uh, Enter the Wu-Tang, it's, it's a single CD, so let's see. Enter the Wu-Tang. 75 minutes. Yeah. Let's go length. Exciting for everyone involved. <laughs> That's a good pod. Um, how, many, how many minutes is this thing? <laughs> yeah, because it's... You can just look it up on Wikipedia, and the runtime will be on there. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. So, Enter the Wu-Tang. Let's, let's see here. This should be interesting. Studio album, da, 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 58 minutes, 26 seconds. Piece of cake. Yeah. So, it'll, it'll be better than All Eyes on Me. It would pretty much have to be. And uh, it's... This is less than half of the length of All Eyes on Me. Slightly, slightly better than the rap battle, too. And yeah, the rap battle was only well, about 45 minutes. I guess minutes, we did have the Chronic. So the Chronic was solid. Yeah, the Chronic was definitely solid. But And so I think maybe this will get me back on the on the high horse. And, and then I can I can expand into other things once once I've gotten back into your good graces. Okay. So you have to get me sold on rap again. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Excellent. So enter the Wu-Tang. 36 chambers? Yep. Okay, 36 chambers. Enter right. the Wu-Tang. So we will see you next time. Peace. Bye. Watch this immediately. Watch this immediately.